HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Barbecue is really a touch. It's a memory. It's a sense memory, taste memory. And when you grow up with it... Any other barbecue that you eat, you're really measuring against that. So there can be lots of great barbecue out there. And we know if someone says to us, you know, this barbecue is good. It's not as good as my favorite barbecue or what I fix in my backyard, but it's good. Like we feel like we've won. Because if you can come in second or third to someone's taste memory, then you're doing okay. That was barbecue heiress Amy Mills explaining the importance of customers giving her family's restaurant the stamp of approval. There's no doubt that some of the country's best barbecue can be found in Charleston, South Carolina. It's one of the major culinary destinations out there. We sat down with Amy in 2020 at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, right before the pandemic hit. Nearly two years later, we are heading back to South Carolina. In honor of our return, we're revisiting some of our favorite conversations from 2020. Despite how much the world has changed since then, these interviews about sustainability, inclusivity, and the joys of eating and drinking still ring true. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meet in 3 on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. The Charleston Wine and Food Festival is committed to elevating the local culinary scene. One of the region's signature foods is rice. Rice and the Low Country have a long and complex history that communities in South Carolina hold close to their hearts. But climate change is threatening the future of this crucial crop by causing saltwater intrusion into the rice fields. All is not bleak, though. HRN's Kat Johnson and Harry Rosenblum sat down with Glenn Roberts and Brian Ward to talk about what they think the future of rice plantations and connected wildlife systems can look like as scientists develop salt-resistant rice strains. 
So what we're going to try to do is see if we can get these rice uh, varieties to grow here and see which varieties actually are really, you know, robust. And then um, at some point in time, hopefully maybe try to back cross them into some existing um, old land race lines like Carolina Gold. And so we'll have salt tolerant Carolina Gold rice and some of our other like Jefferson's Carlet and some of our other unique uh, heirloom type land race lines. And then, then we'll have uh, a more robust uh, rice production in, in, in the low country of South Carolina. Re-envisioning rice production is critical to more than just the low country's food industry. More resistant rice also means more resilient wildlife, including the migratory birds from the region. My dad works on a wildlife refuge in Alabama, and they're starting to see a drop in the birds that are coming, that are passing through. Mm. And they used to work with cooperative farmers to plant corn, flood that. That was what the birds wanted to eat. Are you seeing a similar thing happening around here? And is that a project of yours that you work on on a consistent basis? Uh, it's not a it's not a consistent thing. Yeah. But, but one of the reasons why I wanted to work where I work now uh, in in on in agriculture is because of of waterfowl. Mm. Okay, and so that got me into the whole the whole research. Okay, so well, I went to I went to Auburn as my undergrad. War Eagle, okay? War Eagle, and um, and uh, so. Um, but I wanted to save the, save the world. Yeah. And so, and then I real I didn't realize until actually I had a job, you know, as a, as a summer grunt, you know, digging, digging water furrows and ditches, um, making no money at all. Uh, how much, how much the research that we do out there actually is for the benefit of, of the environment. Um, it's, 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 it's everything we do out there is for the reduction of petrochemical use and precision ag. And so, so it, it basically all of it basically was caused by my interest in wildlife and waterfowl and migratory birds. And I have seen a dramatic drop in the migratory birds along the coast here in South Carolina. Dramatic. And you can ask any waterfowl person in the state and they'll tell you the same thing. So in planting the rice the way that you're envisioning it, do you anticipate that that will hopefully bring back some of these migratory birds? Actually, I, I, I'm 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 pretty pretty positive it will. Yeah. And so one of the things is birds, um, migratory birds are easily imprinted, mm-hmm. and so when they imprint no food, okay, that their their offspring and so on and so forth will not want to come in that flyway. But when you offer food, okay, and then it becomes imprinted upon them, and then the numbers will increase over time. Oh, I didn't expect to talk about migratory birds. I know that's awesome, though. It's all interlinked. It's a, it, it's is. A, it, it right. is. It is. It's a. It's a big circle. Yeah. You know, it's a big circle. Sustainability efforts are interconnected in local communities and across the globe. Our next story brings us from South Carolina to Saint Croix. A native of the U.S. Virgin Islands, Chef Digby Strideron grew up around fresh locally harvested ingredients and fishing. Chef Digby sat down with Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears and Time for Lunch, to talk about sustainability in the country's food systems. Right now, we're going through a complete renaissance, bro. And when I tell you that, I mean, you have people moving from all over the world, as well as local people that are from there that are farming. The people that are coming in to farm, they're not coming in with this mentality of, how do I mass produce? They're trying to fit in with what we're doing, small-scale farming, quality over quantity. And you're watching a resurgence now of the chefs. 
the local chefs who are saying we want to use local ingredients, we want to cook food that we grew up eating, and we want to do it very unapologetically. Because if you know Kujans or Virgin Islanders, we don't need to say sorry for too much. When we do something, we do it very intentional. Digby is very inspired by where the food comes from in St. Croix. With a rich regional flavor profile and culinary culture, the island is influenced by local agriculture, historical influences, and even importing logistics. So the food scene right now in St. Croix, I mean, to me it's the most exciting by far in the Caribbean because you get to see the African roots and the base of the easterly islands when you look at Antilles and, I'm sorry, Anguilla, Antigua. Then you have the, the Trinidadian aspirations in our food as well. You know, but then what's cool about St. Croix is that we're so close to Puerto Rico. So in the 1930s, the Puerto Ricans would come over to help us cut cane. Mm. When they came over to cut cane, they started building housing. Now, even before that, we had the Danes. Right. 270 years of Danish culture. Wow. When you look at Noma and what's going on in Denmark right now with their food culture, it's very relevant to why we have so much pickled stuff, fermented stuff. You were in St. Croix, St. Yeah. Thomas, right? Yeah. So you know you go into somebody's house and it's usually like a bottle in the back of a fermented guava berry rum or a fermented tamarind rum. Yeah. I don't see that in other islands. Right. And I feel like we have this, it's not just farm to table, we have this sustainability in the way we look wow. at it. We have a melting pot concept. Mm -hmm. We have the land. And if you look at St. Croix, we're kind of off track, just like how Barbados is. Yep. So we're not in the same supply chain as everybody else, which makes it harder for the cruise ships to get to us. Right. That's okay with me, though. Yeah. Because by the cruise ship not coming to us as much, it allowed us to kind of make our own living. So when you go to St. Croix and you eat in the restaurants, brother, it's our locals. You know, so it's none of the, like, do they understand the food Digby puts out? No. My restaurant's full all night of people that are local from there, that they're excited about food, and they, know, they want to know where their food comes from, too. Chef Digby will return to Charleston this year as part of an event titled A Punch Paradise. He'll be part of a crew of chefs that will whip up dishes featuring bold, fresh, and flavorful profiles straight from the Caribbean islands. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Meet in 3. Reem Asil is a Syrian-Palestinian chef and restaurateur behind Reem's California, a restaurant serving Arab cuisine with a side of Arab hospitality 
in San Francisco and Oakland. You've heard her before on Meet and 3. She's also a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion within the culinary hierarchy. Last August, Reem wrote an op-ed for Eater titled, Don't Call Me Chef. She challenges the connotation of chef as a label that implies an all-knowing visionary leader in the kitchen. A chef may get all the attention and praise for the meals served, but she says, quote, it's the cooks who are actually running the show. Reem sat down with Harry Rosenblum as she was in the midst of opening her second location in Oakland. Reem shares how she fosters an inclusive environment in her own kitchens, starting with hiring. It's incredibly hard to start a business by yourself, yeah. start a small business, to bootstrap it, to get these things off the ground, but then to add a layer on top of that and say that you are only going to, or you're going to prioritize people who have a difficult time finding employment, yeah. that's like you're adding more work for yourself totally. in totally. creating this community. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for that. Since the beginning of Reams California, she was determined to give the BIPOC and queer community a chance at leadership. I wish people would invest in that more. I mean, I think I don't have the advantage that maybe some other folks do in that we didn't have a lot of capital invested right. in Reams up front. Um, I feel like there's so much more I can do. I feel like I'm never doing enough, but we do invest a lot in the short term um, in terms of how we hire. We take our time hiring folks. Like We do really prioritize people with the most barriers, but we throw them through the gauntlet before they can actually. Sure. We don't just like hire out of desperation. Yep. We really make sure our values are aligned. We, really fo we look at people and their potential for leadership more than their skill set, mm -hmm. um, because you can teach that, but you can't teach people integrity. You can't right. teach people sort of the, the value of being a team player. And showing up on time things. and like all those yeah, things. Like yeah, like leadership, you know, and, and even people who've been knocked down in their life, if there's, we, they show these like sort of leadership qualities when you let them shine, because probably in their life they haven't been given that chance, right? Yeah. But that takes more time and it takes uh, more resources. You know, we pay for staff meetings, we pay for trainings, we do all of these things. And uh, it, it definitely does, it makes us a little less profitable in the short run, but in the long run, it's helped us because we have a much longer retention rate than sort of my perception of my um, peers in the industry. Throughout the turbulence of the past two years, Reem has continued to advocate for her community. She makes sure her restaurants are a safe place for healthcare workers, low-income families, and unhoused people to have a meal. As some in the hospitality industry try to dismantle hierarchies from within, others are focused on making food and beverage more accessible for consumers. In the wine world, a sector infamous for snobbery and exclusivity, Eric Asimov asks, how can we focus on enjoyment over expertise? He's the New York Times chief wine critic. Occasion, price point, taste preference, and food pairing are his key criteria. He sat down with the Grape Nation's Sam Ben Ruby to talk about buying wine. Everybody knows wine is intimidating, and it's especially intimidating for Americans who haven't grown up with it on their table. And, um, the, and it's especially intimidating if you're not in a wine region because instead of just drinking what's made in your community, you're, you've got the whole world right. to choose from. 
and nobody can really educate themselves about everything that's on the shopper or on the wine list. And uh, part of it is also American wine culture, which has um, sort of portrayed wine as a connoisseur's field. It's something really rational that if you read enough books and go to enough classes and, and blind taste so you can identify a Sauvignon Blanc at 20 paces, then... That makes it more intimidating, right? About wine, exactly. Right. Nobody wants to go through that. No, and and really, wine is is just a pleasurable beverage. It's great fun. It's a lot of fun to drink. And if you want to learn more about it, that's great. But you don't really have to know anything about wine. Rather than trying to become an expert, ask one for advice. Eric suggested. You know, there's a tendency because of our wine culture to want to um, demonstrate one's knowledge. This is usually a guy, I have to say. And, and we're afraid to ask for help, just like we're afraid to ask for direction. Right. And, Perfect uh, and, analogy. And the, the people, for the, the same reasons I've already said, they want to help you. They know their stock better than anybody. And I, I feel like I know a lot about wine. When I go to a restaurant, I can sometimes narrow it down to a few bottles, but I almost always, if there's a smart sommelier, will ask their thoughts on it. And sometimes they'll pick one of the bottles. Other times they'll steer me in a new direction, and I'm always, it's almost always rewarding. Same in a retail shop. You go in, I'm roasting a chicken for dinner tonight. Uh, my wife likes red wine, not white. What do you, what do you think? I should drink with that. My budget is $25. So they'll throw something like the Canary Islands out. Maybe. Which could be interesting, Maybe. Right? And yeah. it, chances are it'll be great. All right. So that's, that's seeking guidance, you know, from the people that know, whether it's a sommelier or a store owner. And, you know, at a good restaurant, you're going to come across good psalms. Never be too proud to ask questions. Right. Eric will return to Charleston this year to lead a Chianti wine tasting and a French wine workshop with Joshua Walker of Wine & Company. You can tune in to all our interviews this year on the Heritage Radio Network on Tour podcast feed. You can find all the interviews you heard today there, too. Check out our show notes to learn more and follow along. Special thanks this week to Nora Peachin, Fedehi Kudiahi, Giselle Medina, Angela Cho, and Kiara Thomas. Meet in Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hi, rate us at ideas at mean3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>